Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Buzz killers, buzz killers. It's the professor here. I'm behind the wheel of the Buzzmobile, speeding away from the Buzzkill Institute and the Buzzkill Bunker, on our way to interview Professor Michael Rechtenwald of NYU about his new book, British Secularism in the 19th Century. It's one of the most important books in intellectual history that'll come out this year. So listen up, buzz killers. The next sound you hear will be the music and the buzzsaw, and then we'll go right to Professor Rechtenwald. Talk to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound you hear is a buzzsaw ripping through a painting of George Washington chopping down cherry trees. It's time for Professor Buzzkill, busting myths and taking names. Hello, Buzzkillers. We're on the road. As I promised, we're here at NYU with Professor Michael Rechtenwald talking about his new book, 19th Century British Secularism. Now, Professor, so many people sort of categorize the 19th century in terms of 19th century thought into religious people and then secular people. But it's more complicated than that. What what sort of divisions are there? What's going on? That is a very good question. And it's, it is definitely more complicated than that. First of all, the, the notion of what the secular means in the 19th century is quite uh, important to grasp before mm-hmm. you get the sense of what, what, what people were. Um, secularism itself was founded in 1851 uh, by George Jacob Holyoke, who was a 19th century working class intellectual and free thinker, mm-hmm. um, founder of many periodicals and very prolific writer. He invented the term not, not as a way of dividing the secular from the religious, if you will, right. but rather as a way of dividing radical atheist freethinkers from other freethinkers who would also accept religious people into their fold. Okay, so there's a sort of secular, there are divisions within secularism that are on a, on a spectrum, if you will. Oh, yeah, definitely. Atti- but, attitudes towards but, but religion. The, the, the original term, secularism, was meant as a alternative to radical atheist free thought, actually. Right, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. As opposed to any division from the religious, per se, at right. first. Then, of course, that that movement became, um, you might say, co-opted by Charles Bradlaugh and company, and they turned it back into a radical atheism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how then there was, so you had two camps, two major camps of secularists uh, during the period, the the Holyoke camp and the Bradlaugh camp. Yeah, uh, Buzzkill would be interested to know that Charles Bradlaugh was the member of parliament who refused to take the oath to the crown and to the church before he sat as an MP and... That was a huge. That was a huge case. He went to trial and everything. I think exactly. And and, um, and well, no trial, but there was a there was a long ongoing um, controversy about it. I think they had to pass a bill. They had in to order, pass a bill in order to allow them to let them to, to sit, take, yeah. uh, to to take office without taking the oath. Yeah, and then I think I think they made him um, make a sort of 
secular, if you will, plain pledge, but I'm not really sure about that. We can... yeah, there was a pledge that was uh, more secularized, if you will. Right, right, okay. But there was a trial that involved uh, Brad Law um, that had to do with something else. We could talk about that, but probably better later. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, how how many different sort of elements are there to the, the sort of secular side, if you will, of the intellect of intellectual life in 19th century Britain? Um, well, what you have is you do have the hardcore free thinkers who were more or less atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that included people like uh, Charles Southwell and some of the other comrades that were involved with Holyoke, like um, William Chilton and uh, some other folks. There was a whole cadre of those people. Uh-huh. Right. Then you had the more conciliatory people like Holyoke himself. Right who wanted to include not only working-class radicals and atheists, but also middle-class and the, the, uh, liberal theists, or mm-hmm. liberal theologians, if you will, into the camp. So you have those two groups. Uh, and then, you know, there were also there, you know, offers made to Christian socialists as well. Right, later in the century. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so you have a kind of uh, a camp that includes, you know, a wide, a wide variety of people, like, for example, uh, Francis Newman. All right. The brother of John Henry Newman, of course. Right. The great, theolo- the great theologian. And the great writer. Catholic theologian and a major figure in the 19th century who went on to become a Catholic, of course, converted from uh, Anglican evangelicalism and became a Catholic, and then, of course, later a cardinal. Mm-hmm. Uh, his brother, Francis, is quite an interesting person who started as well as from an Anglican evangelical base and went on to become a pure, what he called primitive Christian Mm -hmm. or a pure theist. He shed doctrine after doctrine after doctrine of Christianity and ended up in a sort of pure theism, which had no doctrinal uh, requirements, but involved simply what he thought an intimate and, you know, relationship with with God without any uh, trammels of church doctrine and so forth. He was also very much instrumental in the secularist movement. Also involved, you have people like Thomas Huxley. Uh-huh. There was a group around 1851, 1852, they called themselves a confidential combination of thinkers, of free thinkers. And from everything that I can tell, it was also anonymous so this makes it very interesting for the historian. Yeah, 19th century pamphleteers were often anonymous, although the people at the time often could tell. Well, this is a group they're... that met regularly. Oh, they call them, so the group called themselves anonymous. The group anonymous. called themselves I a see. confidential I... com- uh, combination. Oh, right, 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 right. So the big question is how to know for sure who was involved. Right. But I can say for a fact that people like uh, Holyoke, of course, were involved. Uh, George Henry Lewis, of course, mm-hmm. the partner of George Eliot, was definitely involved. Um, Thornton Hunt, the son of Lee Hunt, the poet, was involved. Uh, pretty good indications that um, Spencer was involved. Right. Um, and there's a good sense that perhaps Huxley himself was involved. So this is an educated, middle-class and above group of people. This isn't a bunch of working-class radicals. For the most part, it's middle-class, but it it did include Holyoke, who basically was very flattered to be included amongst a group of middle-class thinkers and and literary and scientific intellectuals. Now, early on in the book, you make make it a a point to say, look, there are different meanings between secular, secularism, secularization, the secularization thesis, and not only do those things mean different things, each of those terms modifies, it has a modified meaning at different times. Can you explain a little bit more about that? 
I mean, we sense we, let's start with the term secular, of course. Mm-hmm. We think of the secular as something that's not religious. Uh, right. That's the usual bifurcation. Uh, we think of the binary in terms of secular slash religious. Right, either or. But the distinction in the word secular was not from religion at first at all, but really from eternity. So secular referred to time rather than, say, non-religious. It referred oh. to, to time in life, time in, as opposed to eternity, time in, in uh, terrestrial existence. Well, that's fascinating. So that's the real distinction there. That actually, that particular meaning of secular is the kind that's taken up in the secularist movement, the sense of what pertains to this life as opposed to the next. Right. You're not preparing yourself for the next life. This yes. life is everything. So the activities that people in the secularist movement were involved in were about improving the conditions of this life as opposed to worrying about those of the next. That's right. the only requirement, you might say, that, so, that was that was had for that movement. So technically, technically not anti-religion. No. But not just a, more concerned about this life. In fact, they, they, they became what I would say they were a methodological materialism, not an ontological materialism. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. they weren't... There was no requirement that one swear off the, the extra material, the supernatural, right, or the other world, uh, the otherworldly. Merely that your efforts would be directed at activities that were made for the improvement or done for the improvement of of, of people in this life. Right, right. Well, that's fascinating. Then secular secularity uh, is a term that's quite important. Secularity, of course, means living in an age or an age or a time in which the secular mostly prevails. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my book, I basically take up uh, and sort of absorb the meaning of secularity given by Charles Taylor in A Secular Age, his incredible uh, monograph from 2007. In that book, he defines secularity not as a condition absent of religion, but as a condition of kind of uh, what I'll call an optative state, with reference to belief, right. in which both belief and unbelief become options right. for uh, for people. For the first time in history, unbelief becomes an option for many people. But that there is a tensile, it's a tensile condition in which the, both, both of them prevail and sort of modify each other uh, and problematize and fragilize each other as well, because everyone is aware that they could be either a believer or an unbeliever, etc., now, in this sense, is he talking about 19th century people? Is this a sort it of— It goes a, all the way into modernity itself. Oh, right. Okay. It begins, I think, and he does too, in the 19th century, but this is the condition that persists into yeah. our period. Yeah, I was amazed, always amazed when I was a graduate student studying 19th century, but how many things happen around 1850, 1851 that we end up still with today, you know? Yeah. Great exhibition, trains really start to explode, religious— um, Right. Yeah. So, what my argument is that secularism, as founded by Holyoke, is the inaugural moment of secularity in this sense. Right. What about secularization? Secularization. Yeah. This is a very, very hot topic. It's been a hot topic for a while now. The question of secularization. I'd like to start by talking about what the standard secularization thesis is, mm-hmm. and that is basically that as we move into modernity. The uh, society in general becomes less and less religious. Religion is moved from moved out of more and more domains, right. if you will, spheres of life and activity, and more and more uh, 
uh, people become uh, unbelievers or at least non-believers. Um, and, you know, the religious is continuously declining, according mm -hmm. to the standard thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been, of course, in the last 20 years at least, greatly challenged because uh, of the persistence of religion in many contexts, not only, uh, you know, not only uh, in the Middle East, but all throughout the world. And the revival of, of Christianity in the, in the 80s and going forward in the United States and elsewhere. So um, many challenges to this standard thesis have come, uh, have come about. Right. And how do the challenges of the, towards, the, towards the standard thesis about secular th uh, theory and uh, you know, the fact that it doesn't hold true for the late 20th century, has that changed how people thought about secularism and secularization in the 19th century? Oh, yeah. It's, it's causing a re revision, uh, revision of the understanding of secularization or secularity in the 19th century, 18th century, and forward. Right. Definitely. Um, in fact, that's um, one of the things I talk about in the introduction. There are many uh, new books challenging the secularization, uh, secularity in the 19th century as we commonly understand it or have understood it. Uh, one book was called um, A Crisis of Doubt, mm -hmm. which was basically to challenge the idea of that the 19th century, especially from the Victorian period, on was a period of a crisis in faith, of faith. Uh, this book, The Crisis of Doubt, suggests that, in fact, there was a crisis of people who are unbelievers who converted back to Christianity. Right. So there was a lot of reconversion going on, according to this book. And there are other flowering movements of religion and organized religion in the late 19th century, the high church movement and all that sort oh, of thing. Oh, yes, and theosophy, to... right. Uh, right. Uh, spiritualism in general. Uh, which had a different meaning in the mid-19th century, but in the, in the late 19th century, of course, becomes a matter of talking to spirits and different mediums and so forth. Right. But uh, in the early, in the mid-19th century, it really referred to uh, that kind of pure theism that I was talking about before, this kind of non-dogmatic, non-doctrinaire, spiritual, but not religious type of uh, belief. In fact, that's really where I would say you could almost pinpoint to the moment when this idea, the phrase wasn't used, but spiritual but not religious really came into being. Oh, which is so commonly used nowadays. Yeah, People very common. refer to themselves as spiritual but not religious all the time. Right. Facebook is you know, full of it, right? Full of it, yeah, yeah. almost all, they all do. Um, one of the most interesting things about this, as, as I was reading your book, was that so many people are involved in 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 rummaging through these questions, and so many different types of people, all the way from Carlisle and all the way through the 19th century. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the sort of players on the scorecard deal with secularism and secularity and things like that as the century moves on? Yeah, sure. That's great. I, I take it up in the beginning of the, uh, from the 1820s, roughly. Uh, and you mentioned Carlisle, and I'll make the distinction between right. there's two Carlisles that I deal with. One is Thomas Carlisle, the very well-known uh, essayist and uh, major figure of the 19th century, Political especially philosopher, yeah. everybody looked back to him as a huge influence on them. Uh, people all the way from Huxley through, I mean, just everybody. Um, then, uh, and then Richard Carlyle, who was the radical working class or artisanal free thought uh, atheist, I guess, or more of a deist, maybe. We'll put them both on the on the blog Buzzkillers, and then their their Carlyles are spelled differently, so you'll know which is which. Yeah, Thomas is with an L. Uh, I'm sorry, with, with a Y, y. <laughs> and the other is I L E. 
So it's Y-L-E, that's Thomas, and I-L-E is Richard. Right. Thomas Carlyle dealt with secular secularity in an interesting way. I look at it mostly through his book, Sartre Resartus, the novel, the most mm-hmm. peculiar novel you may ever encounter, <laughs> right. if you do encounter it. I strongly suggest or strongly recommend the book. It's quite an entertaining and mind-blowing read. Well, we'll put it on the book, Buzzkill bookshelf, so they'll be able to order it right from our website. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, Sartre Resartus, he basically, in this book, approaches the whole thing through this fictional character uh, named Trufeldrosh, and <laughs> uh, whose it's name Tolkien, if you yeah, will. whose name means God-born devil's dung, <laughs> um, and this character basically goes through what we'll call a dark night of the soul, in which he counters materialist uh, science mm-hmm. and materialist um, thinking, and loses his faith, and uh, and this goes on for seems seemingly forever. And eventually he he comes to this new revelation, if you will, of a kind of spirituality that has no doctrinal basis to it. Uh, once again, you might say he's spiritual but not religious, actually. Put that on his Match.com profile. <laughs> so he has what I call a new, re- a sort of a re-enchantment mm-hmm. of the secular. The secular, the secular becomes re-enchanted. The divine becomes imminent. That's with an A. Yeah, uh, it becomes visible in nature itself. The miraculous is something that happens just by virtue of existence, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. It's a very, very amazing poem. Yeah, uh, to look at. Um, so I won't say that much more about it. You have to read the chapter if you want to see more. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Richard Carlyle is a standard secularization theorist, if you will. Um, he thinks that with the rise of science and the printing press that we can destroy religion just by telling the truth about what science reveals. Right. So this is more or less a standard secularization theory. He's a proto-positivist, I say, because he's saying this in advance of people like Auguste Comte mm-hmm. in, the, in the 19th century from 1830 on, who becomes a major theorist of, of the secular, if you will, probably the first, if not one of the first, proto-secularists, right. uh, proto-secularization theorists, if you will, uh, the, who suggests you know, that this, this whole thing that that's with the rise of science and industrialization, urbanization, et cetera, religious, religion will naturally disappear. That's basically Thomas Carlyle's, I'm sorry, Richard, Richard Carlyle's Carlyle. standpoint. So he's maybe an early secularization theorist, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to believe that people would st- might start thinking this way because the changes that are happening from 1820, especially to 1850, just seem to be enormous. They're enormous so the changes. You talk about these things in the books, you know, steam trains and all sorts of energy being harnessed that people had never right. really used before. It looks like science is miraculous. It's able right. to do amazing things. Science and technology have this power, right? So they take up this godly power and then effect becomes materialized. So who wouldn't start to think about the idea of you know that God may be this power that we actually could harness, and maybe we maybe we we don't need this other external agency to undertake these unbelievably miraculous uh, undertakings. Right, and then it moves on to well, sorry, have you more about Carlyle? Not too much. I'm gonna let, let them read the chapter. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then go on to Holyoke again. We you introduced him a little bit more in in, in the beginning, but uh... George Holyoke was a whitesmith 
apprentice as a, as a boy, grew up in Manchester and became a chartist and became an Owenite uh, social missionary. That is, he was part of the Owen, Owenism, the, the movement founded by Robert Owen, uh, which was a early English socialist movement. Right. And they workers-based cooperatives and things cooperatives like that. and home colonies. Yeah. And on and on. Holyoke was one of them, and later broke with that movement, but not entirely, you know, from a philosophical standpoint. He may more or less absorbed the, most of the ideas of Owen. Right. It was kind of a social environmentalism, in effect. He believed that circumstances produced character, you know, and that, and, you know, that morality was really something that was intrinsic to human beings that wasn't required, didn't require any extra, um, extra natural agency to impart it or anything like that. Uh, he was um, very much a naturalist, and um, and I argue in the book that his movement of secularism actually predates and is a kind of precursor to scientific naturalism as found as founded by Huxley and promoted by Huxley, Tyndall, Herbert Spencer, and others. Uh, and then one of the things about the 19th century, Professor, it seems to me, is it's almost wall-to-wall Newmans. There's, there's, there seems to be – they're all related or almost all related, and they're, they're, they're in politics, they're in religion, especially they're in education. Yeah. They're a big part of this movie, of, of these movements that you're talking about. Yeah. There's um, three Newman brothers that I deal with in the book in one chapter. That is, of course, John Henry Newman, the Catholic convert who I've mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, Francis Newman, the theist – who I mentioned before, and Charles uh, Charles Newman, who was a atheist, actually. Mm. So all three of them began from the same evangelical base and converted in three different directions. And this is what I think as they, this, they, they epitomize what I am characterizing as what secularity means in this in this moment and beyond. That is this very possibility of having these various doctrinal conversions into different directions all from the same base. That is secularity, as I understand it. Right. That's fascinating. It's amazing. I wonder how, you know, maybe their parents weren't alive, but as they gradually started drifting away towards the Church of England, you know, how that went down around the family dinner table. But I know that, again, all this seems to be happening, 1851, 18, yeah. you know, all these all these conversions, there's their their the Protestant Association, I think, is founded in 1850, 1851. There's, there's important legislation about Catholicism, and on right. and on. Of and course, on. yeah, you have all the you know the Catholic emancipation. Right. Uh, then you have, of course, you have the same thing with reference to Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finally, you get a kind of secularization of the state to some degree, and of course, education is is definitely imputed there because. You know, previous to this, you had to swear to the 39 Articles of Faith to even attend university right. and graduate. So, And to sit as, in Parliament as the Bradlaugh case. And Parliament as well. So the 39 Articles became the main uh, dividing point, and finally those, you know, those kinds of uh, shibboleths become unnecessary mm-hmm. later in the century. Yeah, and I think one reason they uh, Parliament works so hard on the uh, the liberals anyway, works so hard on the 1870 Education Act, is to sort of cut through, maybe not make a secular elementary education system, but to cut through all the difficulties and all the contradictions of what the kids had to go through, go through in the classroom. Right. Uh, part of the reason was because of the, the numerous sects and divisions of Protestantism, mm-hmm. it became necessary to have some, some way of teaching that did not 
favor one or the other. So the secular comes about in education more or less through default by, by virtue of Protestant squabbling, if you right. will. Yeah, um, and diversity. The, right, you know, they can diversity. Right, right, exactly. Now, how does how do how do later thinkers and how do later sort of um, um, intellectuals intellectuals like George Eliot? How do they fit into this? Oh, uh, George Eliot is a fascinating character. Of course, it's Marianne Evans is right. her is her born name. Uh, she takes George Eliot as a, as a pseudonym and pen name, and a life name. Um, hmm. She is a, an incredible character. Really was involved, I would say, in the beginning of this movement. In fact, itself, the um, the founding of secularism, in the sense that she's very connected to, to George Henry Lewis, who's intimately involved in it. Uh, she's reading the periodicals. She reads the Reasoner. We know she reads the the work of Holyoke. She definitely subscribes to what I would call a secular worldview. It's there are many quotes that I could adduce to point this out. There's one in which she basically is quoted as saying, it's enough to attend to the matters of this world uh, without worrying about the matters of the next, mm-hmm. and that much more can be done by doing so to improve our conditions here on Earth, which have a great deal of effect on our posterity. So. The idea is that, yeah, the secular seems to be about the immediate, but she extends it into the sense of the, of the future. So it extends into what I would call, in re- reference to her, a secular sublime, as she right. characterizes, as she, what I see she characterizes as kind of sublime, which, a secular sublime, if you will. Would some of our listeners think of this as, as somewhat similar to the later Catholic worker movement and things like that in the 20th century, her uh, her, her characterization of, of concentrating on this world to make things better for the next world. Yeah, I think so. Um, except there's or no, other Catholic social things. Yeah, you know. I think so. Except there's no, there is no doctrinal basis for eternity or 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 God in her belief right. system. Oh, yeah. But um, she does have a value for religion, a great deal of respect for religion. Mm-hmm. She is not what I would call what a hard secularist who's trying to abolish religion. Actually, she sees it as having a great deal of, of, of effects that are very beneficial and necessary. Right. And if not undertaken by religion, would have to be undertaken some, by some other cultural um, and institutional bodies. So she sees uh, religion as very, very valuable. Uh, Although she herself doesn't subscribe to its doctrines, she really wants to respect its sentiment and the moral sentiments involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really where she—that's where she is when she starts writing her novels. Right before that, she was kind of a radical, hard secularist, but she takes a turn more towards a sympathetic and conciliatory view towards religion. This is why I call her a post-secularist. Right. That's right. Is really this is this is. What you might call the long nineteenth century. These 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 changes and these new developments in intellectual life are are being. It's like a beehive. The nineteenth century, right? And, and so many different bees going around at the, at the same time. And of course, one of those uh, big big changes, like you talked about earlier, was science. And you take up Lyle, uh, the geologist, in chapter two of the book, and I think it's absolutely fascinating because, of course, Lyle is so famous. But could you tell the buzzkillers what? Well, first of all, what he did, yeah, and what the reaction to him was, and things right. like that. Well, uh, he comes into the into making an intervention in geology in eighteen thirty through eighteen thirty three with his principles of geology, which is a major right. three volume tome 
about geology that not only is a popular text, readable right. by just about anyone, but also a, a text that is uh, cutting-edge science and science theory. He inaugurates this notion of the uniformity in nature, right. and uniformity becomes the principle of geological study from his standpoint, from thence forward. In fact, this is why he's thought of as the father of modern geology. Right. And he's, is, it, is it from his work directly or indirectly from his work that the layers of sediment as you dig down prove that the, the earth is much older and that things have developed? No, no that's, that's the empirical work that had been done in advance. Uh-huh. What, his, what his main argument was that looking at the world, looking at the earth in the past, we can only accredit to the um, earth the same kinds of uh, forces that are operative today. Right. So we can't ascribe to changes in the past any kind of forces that are not operative, operative today, not only okay. in kind, but in degree. Wow. Yeah, so he's, so this rolls out things like the Mosaic Flood. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a major turning point. Saying, he's saying that we can only look at the past with reference to the same kinds of, and same kind and the same degree of forces that are operating today. Right. Of course, in effect, he, that changes the way geological understanding is, is done, or geological mm-hmm. science is done from that, that time forward. But he, of course, he was wrong. Mm-hmm. Not theoretically, but empirically, he was wrong, because there had been forces that operated <laughs> that were very different. And one of them was glacials, glacial uh, movement, of course. Right. Glaciers he did not know about. How does this, this seems to be very technical and very, you know, this is very hard science. How does this, how does, uh, how do Lyle's ideas and others, yeah. others how do they weave in with yeah. the other secularists? Well, what I, th- what I argue is that this notion of uniformity in nature is a secular wedge driven into science. Huh. Because it's the first time in which somebody is basically saying, look, we can only concentrate on natural forces. We cannot, cons- we cannot look at the Earth's history and think of it in terms of some sort of deluge that had been right. um, ordained by God to take place, that we can only look at present causes as operative in the past. That's a huge thing, because, I mean, that's, oh, yeah. if we did the same thing with reference to religion, we would outlaw miracles, in effect, mm-hmm. right? We would say that you can't think of anything that happened in the biblical past in terms of miracles at all. We'd have to look for natural causality only. So I say that he drives a secular wedge into science, and this has a huge effect not only on science but on culture, broadly speaking. Right. Uh, because it's if you look at things ter- strictly in terms of this kind of uniformity of nature, it's suggestive of you know a banishment of all supernatural neutral, supernatural causality. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, I argue that it's a kind of it's it's an indica- indicative of a kind of political gradualism that's being. Uh-huh. Proffered, right? An accretion of change. Right? Yes, it's it supports what I suggest as um, it's a, it supports a kind of gradual reformism in mm-hmm. politics, as opposed to the possibilities of radical political change that would been that had been proffered and agitated for by working class radicals like Richard Carlyle and others. Now, this is fascinating because 
as a political historian of the 19th century, we talk a lot about how the 1832 Reform Act was just a little bit of an improvement, then 1867 was a little more, right. and then 1880, blah, 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 right. blah. And, and every, at every stage, there are all kinds of even reformers who say, you know, let's go slow. Let's right. just make sure we don't make any mistakes along the right. way. So it is a sort of geological moving yes, of, very, in this case, very the electorate. very, very slow, gradual, gra- gradualism, right? Of course, this right. is the term that becomes used to refer to both the political and the geological change that takes place. It's a gradual change, gradual motion. Now, are other people using Lyle or misusing Lyle, misunderstanding Lyle, in order to promote other other strains of secularism or other ideas? Are they looking to the, well, this is geology, therefore we need to give women the vote, blah, 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 blah. You know, things- um, I think it's more implicit. It's not an explicit use of Lyle for the political realm. Okay. I think it's more or less he's setting a tone and making suggestions and, and implications that seem to, to ripple into other areas. Right. Okay. That if this is the way the world works, if this is the way the earth works, this is the way nature works, this is the way society should work, this is the way the political should work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not an, an actual, nobody develops any policies based on jo- uh, Charles uh, Lyell's right. principles of geology. They don't That's right. Although it's, it's remarkable to me how many people do read this stuff that oh, aren't, aren't scientists and aren't experts A ton of people read it. If they don't read it itself, they're reading reviews about it, which right. are extremely extensive. And if you read these reviews, which are 30, 40, 60, 80 pages long, mm. you get a real good sense of what's going on in the book. Yeah, the cliff notes of the 19th century. I mean, they just really, reviewing was just massive, and the, the reviews were extensive. And this is one of the major reviewers, of course, was William Yule. Yep. W-H-E-W-E-L-L, who coined the terms catastrophists and, uh, and uh, uniformitarians. Right. So the catastrophist camp and the uniformitarian camp. Uh, uniformitarian camp, of course, referred to the Lyell camp. The catastrophist was everybody else who still wanted to see these, who still saw the earth in terms of these major episodes like the, the flood and so forth. These became coined as catastrophists. That became... From thenceforward, a kind of uh, term of derision, if you will, right. for anybody who held on to fantastical ideas with reference to science. Yeah, we, but we still have else. those people today. There are right. catastrophists and, 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 and gradualists and all kinds of things. In the, catastrophists in the, and gra- gradualists. Yeah, that's the real division catastrophists versus gradualists. Uniformitarian mm-hmm. is the more technical term referred to, to use to refer to uh, Lyell. Well, one of the other ways in which you show the importance of secularism in the book is that how it affects the emergence, what you say, the emergence of scientific naturalism. What's that all about? Yes. Uh, what, do I, what I argue, and I trace it, I think I trace very closely in connection with uh, Holyoke and the founders of 19th century um, scientific naturalism, in particular Huxley, mm-hmm. is that I try to show through a word history and a kind of etymology of, and a sort of genealogy of the two movements, how, how closely connected they are, secularism and scientific naturalism, not only in terms of their social networks that are involved, their people, their, uh, Holyoke and Huxley and Tyndall and Spencer, they're all communicating constantly mm-hmm. through, through uh, letters. I almost said emails. <laughs> <laughs> through letters. And be, they're almost like emails because the mail gets delivered same day. Yes, you know? and, and multiple times. Many yeah, times, yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Um, but uh, not only that, but as in a philosophic sense, their, their resemblance is so great. In fact, I would suggest that secularism is really the precursor of agnosticism 
which hmm. is the con- which agnosticism is the earlier term used to re- to refer to what becomes called scientific naturalism, right. and that is simply that agnosticism is more or less what I will call a philosophical, not a philosophical, but a a, a, a methodological materialism mm-hmm. as opposed to a philosophical or an ontological materialism, right? And that is to say that for the, what the scientific naturalists uh, made necessary was that we, we look at we look at natural phenomenon. We do not impute any other agency in, into it. Right. We only look at natural phenomenon in terms of immediate causality, without reference to anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, Comte said the same thing, of course, um, but by this point, it becomes a shibboleth. In nineteenth to do science, you had to be a, a, in effect a nineteenth century scientific naturalist. Right, right, right. Well, um, well, how about we wrap up by your looking at your epilogue, which is about secularism and, and modern secularity. Yes. What 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 is that? How how does that? Because early in the book, you talk about the secular secularization theory, how it affects the twentieth and twenty first centuries. Yeah. What about this um, secularism as modern secularity? Okay. Yeah, what I'm basically saying there is that, you know, secularism should not be on, you know, George Holyoke's secularism as a movement and a creed mm-hmm. was an abysmal failure, in effect. Right. Okay. It did not convert new, enormous amounts of people to secularism. Right. Okay. It did not, you know, amount to uh, a philosophical movement, even, or a philosophical standpoint that would be uh, unassailable. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there are many problems and contradictions and tensions within it. One on one of the contradictions is that it wants to include all these people, but in effect, it says that it also wants to, in effect, convert them to secular thought. Mm-hmm. So it wants to include religious people as religious people, but in, at the same time, it argues that uh, it would replace religion. So you, right. you can't have that kind of tension or contradiction without falling apart in some sense. But my point in the book is that it should not be understood as as most important for its movement and ability to convert others or its philosophical uh, consistency, but rather it should be understood as a perfect illustration of the predicament of modernity in terms of these issues, in hmm. terms of uh, religiosity and uh, secularity and the way that they co-mingle and coexist simul- simultaneously and will probably... For the uh, you know into the uh, future, unless something dramatic changes, yeah, a catastrophist turns out to be right. Right. I mean, after all, look at what happened in the Soviet Union, for example. Right. You know, religion it became an atheist state. Religion becomes le- illegal. Mm-hmm. What is the most one of the most religious countries in the world today? Russia. Yeah. Russia is enormously religious today. So right. how well did that kind of approach, or that belief <laughs> about religion, work? That's right. Well, Not very well. Secularization theory seems to you know run. Run into trouble there, right. at least. Buzzkillers, I want to remind you, the book is 19th Century British Secularism, and we're very, very fortunate Professor Rechtenwald is going to give away a signed copy of the book to the first buzzkiller who emails me, info at professorbuzzkill.com, and comes up with the best topic for our next episode. So email me, and I'll choose among the best suggestions you have. Thanks again, Professor. It's been most illuminating, and I hope we can talk about your next research project. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate it, and the pleasure's been mine. Thank you. 
Adios, Buscalers. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.